All right, am I on now, Eric? Okay. Just a few announcements. Please continue to pray for the Kelly family. Uh, Brian's mother passed away uh, uh, a week or two ago, and they're going to be there for, uh, for uh, through the Christmas season. Uh, pray that God's grace would be felt on, on them and in their circumstances, and that they would have safe travel back home. Um, there is a new new bulletin for the month of December out in the foyer. Uh, in it, you'll see a notice. Just uh, Let me just sh- tell you the two that are coming up next. December 16th and 17th will be our concluding weeks for the men and women's study. Uh, and then um, December 24th at 6.30 here at the church will be our Christmas Eve candlelight service. So if you're around... Uh, come on down and uh, have a good time. Philippians 2. And we'll be using the next four weeks looking at passages that talk about the incarnation of our Lord. And then we'll return to Deuteronomy. Let's read chapter, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And these exhortations that Paul is giving the church, these are qualities that were already existing in the Lord Jesus. And that's why Paul uses Jesus as, as the supreme illustration and says, be like him, have this mind. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, <clears throat> but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. If your translation, uh, maybe your translation has the word robbery. He, he didn't fear it was something that could be taken from him. But rather emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. There's our incarnation. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, what a a wonderful, amazing, 
gracious thing that you who enjoyed intimacy and glories and supreme divine contentment alongside the Father and the Spirit for eternity past. What an amazing thought that you as the transcendent Son of God would become incarnate and would take on a robe of human flesh and take upon yourself the limitations of our nature so that as the scripture says, you are called our brother in that you share our nature. You were made like us. What an amazing thought that the Son of God would stoop so low and would have such lowliness of mind, such humility, such a complete lack of conceit, a complete lack of selfishness, a complete lack of self-centeredness and vanity, and would instead put aside what you deserve and willingly have placed upon your strong shoulders what we deserved. You are indeed more infinitely gracious than we can possibly fathom. As we approach Christmas time, help our minds to linger and linger long and linger profoundly on the profound truth that the eternal Son of God took upon human nature so that He might redeem mankind, so that He might redeem, so that you might redeem us. Amen. Put your thumb in Second Timothy. We'll look at that as we close. Ephesians chapter three, eleven to thirteen. Don't lose heart for the gospel. And help me, allow me to help you not lose heart by starting my timer. If you've ever felt discouraged or even a little bit dismayed that perhaps your salvation or your Christian walk, perhaps it wasn't as legitimate or, or it wasn't as good as somebody else because your life wasn't as blessed as theirs. Anyone in here ever felt that? If, 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 this is, if that is true in your case, then this message is for you, friend. And if you've ever wondered what God was, what is God doing with you? What is God doing with your life? What is God doing through you? What is God doing through your circumstances? Then this message is for you. If you've ever wondered, was God even doing anything at all? Because, man, my life is full of hardship and trial and struggles and sadnesses. 
and from a fleshly point of view, from, from an external point of view, for, from appearances' sakes, it sure seems like, like the things that w- Paul has described in Ephesians 1, chapter 4. Namely, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Sure seems like that's, <clears throat> like that's a little hard to believe. Sure seems like where Paul said in chapter 2 that we've been made alive, that we've been raised up with Christ, that we've been seated in the heavenly places with Christ. There are occasions, occasions and circumstances, I'm sure, where we are tempted to become skeptical or, or doubt the inherent goodness and truthfulness of passages like that. If you've ever doubted that the hand of God might have, might have passed you over, or that is providence for you, that is providence for your life, that the circumstances that he has crafted together for you were perhaps spurious, then this message is for you. Why, why do I say that? I say that because Paul has spent the first two chapters of Ephesians explaining the, the magnanimous, the, the wonderful, the lofty grace and the wondrous power of God in saving Gentiles and in building his church. That those who were lost have been chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit, that dead people, spiritually speaking, have been made alive, that enslaved people have been raised up in heavenly exaltation, and that that those who deserve holy wrath, He has given heavenly acclaim and heavenly privilege and heavenly prestige, being that they are seated with Christ. That those whose works were were nothing but filthy rags, he prepared for those people good works for them to walk in. And, and more so than that, he empowers them to walk in those works. Those who were far off, he has brought near. Those who were hopeless, he gave hope. Those who were godless, he gave himself as their defender, as their advocate, as their counselor, as their father, as a friend who is always present, always willing to hear them and receive them and to help them. I mean, Psalm 18.10 says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower and that the righteous man runs into it and he is safe. That's a good place to be. This is, this is two chapters of a wondrous, grandiose, incredible explanation of what God has done and is doing and will do in your salvation. But Paul, I'm, I think, uh, trying to, trying to, uh, uh, perceive why he has taken this, uh, 12 verse detour, I think he has anticipated that there would be some who have heard of his incarceration in Rome and that they would be a little perplexed that the that the the great apostle the mighty apostle the man appointed by Christ himself to be his mouthpiece before kings and nations 
that this same man is languishing in chains. His freedom revoked. Unable to go where he wishes, unable to do as he wishes. I think Paul anticipates for, for some of his readers who, who are uh, tempted to think this way, and they're tempted to think that things aren't adding up, that maybe Paul made a mistake somewhere, maybe God was punishing him, maybe God really wasn't behind Paul's message after all. Maybe Paul had gone rogue and was doing his own thing. Maybe he was a troublemaker after all, like the Judaizers were saying about him. Maybe they were onto something after all, and Paul wasn't to be trusted. And if Paul wasn't to be trusted, then maybe the Jesus that Paul preached wasn't to be trusted after all. And so Paul takes this 12-verse rabbit trail to explain, and it's really a defense. It's, it's an explanation of his mystery, and it's a defense. It's an apologetic for the gospel that has called him, specifically him in context, to suffer. To suffer through miserable circumstances. And, in, and as it applies to us, this gospel likewise calls us to suffer faithfully and boldly and confidently. So let's, let's see what Paul says is his conclusion to his defense of the, minist- uh, of the gospel in verses 11 to 13. We'll see the purpose of God in verse 11. We'll see the privilege of the believer in verse 12. And then the petition of the apostle in verse 13. Let's read what Paul has for us today. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Now, let's look at the purpose of God in verse 11. The purpose of God. Verse 11 starts off with this. And in the broad context, uh, this, this is really pointing back to everything that Paul has been building up. This is, this is encapula- encapsulates the whole rabbit trail that Paul started on verse two, and he's finally wrapping it up. And we'll, we'll see that he's going to explain, he's going to give us a purpose statement for this rabbit trail. He tells us why, why he took it. But, but as I said, this points back to everything Paul has been building up. Namely, in verse 1, that he was a prisoner of the Lord. He was a prisoner of the Lord. Verse 2, he was stewarded with God's grace for Gentiles. Verse 3, he was given the mystery of the gospel. Verse 7, he was made a minister. He didn't go out and just choose to do it for himself. He was made a minister by the gift of God's grace. And then beyond that, he was in, uh, uh, God's grace f- was followed up by the power that he supplied. But specifically, this uh, most certainly uh, points to what Paul has just said in verses 8 to 10. And I say that because 
uh, it is grammatically, verse 11 is grammatically connected to verse 10. It is still one sentence. And what he said there was that as the leastest, as the very, very, very most least, as the absolute bottom of the barrel when it comes to saints, he was given this gracious privilege to preach the riches, the unending, the inexhaustible, the innumerable riches of Christ to people that no one else was going to, the Gentiles. And that through his preaching of Christ, that men and angels alike would be given fuel for worship as God's many-sided, many-detailed, many-faceted wisdom of his plan to save Jew and Gentile and his son, Jesus Christ, is brought to light. That's all wrapped up in this. That's what demonstrative pronouns do. They point to stuff. All this, along with the conflict that his ministry stirred up, the, the opposition staring him in the face, his suffering for Christ, his, his imprisonment for the gospel. All this, says Paul, everything was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he, being the Father, carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Everything is bound up in the purpose, the eternal purpose of God. Now, let me ask you a question. Where did your salvation come from? Where did all your blessings, think think back to chapter 1, verse 4, all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, and everything from verse 5 all the way to chapter 2, verse 22, where did all that come from? And someone may say, well, someone shared the gospel with me. I went to a youth camp. I grew up in a Christian family. I went to a Christian private school, and I heard... Uh, perhaps at chapel, I heard from my parents, I heard from a speaker, I heard from someone share Jesus with, with us, and I gave my life to him because I saw my need for forgiveness. And that's true. But I want you to dig a little deeper. Go back a bit more. Where did those realities come from? Well, you see, I was dead in my sin. I had a heart of stone and the, uh, you know, I, 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 pastor, I think you want me to answer this more theologically, right? So, so I had a heart of stone and the Holy Spirit came and changed my heart so that I would come to Jesus. And I would say, well, that's true. But where did all that come from? Oh, okay. I get it. You, you want me to think biblically. Okay. Well, the Holy Spirit came and brought to my mind the understanding of what Jesus did in all those uh, years ago on the cross, all the things that the, the prophets foretold, uh, Zechariah, Isaiah, David, all the other prophets who wrote on the cross. And even, even Moses wrote about Jesus, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Even, even Moses, as far back as the first book of the Bible, talks about Jesus on the cross. You think that's it? You think that's what I'm getting for, what I'm going for? Was, is, is that 
Genesis 3, is that where it all started? Was the cross a response plan to man's failure in the garden? You're shaking your head no. Good. You get five points. When God made every, well, I'm gonna, I, just for the sake of argument, I need to follow along with my, with my train of thought here. When God made everything in Genesis 1 and 2, was the cross at that point not in the plan? Was the fall of man and the, and the entrance of sin into the world, was that something that surprised God? It came, it blindsided him, and then God needed to go to the drafting board and, and find a way to save man and to redeem man. Did God need to uh, then come up with the solution to, to save man through his beloved son? It was, was the cross an afterthought? Was that plan B? Is the church plan B? Is everything in your Christian experience and all of your Christian blessing and all of your Christian assurances and your inheritance and your, and your destiny and, <coughs> and your position and your standing in Christ, is this all the result of God just being really, really good at making lemonade when his creation gives him a bucket of lemons? What I suggest... I suggest it because I think it's right, is that Paul is taking us beyond the the veil of time and really beyond the beyond the pale of temporal causes and effects and human and, and even angelic interference, and he's going way back, way back into eternity past, where and when there was only God and nothing else and no one else. And beloved, it was there. And then, when God purposed and planned his church. Now, in a way, you came to exist at that point. You, in a way, you came to be, though you didn't, I, I will admit, you didn't have a body, you didn't have any material, you didn't have a conscience, you didn't have a spirit or a soul. But nonetheless, you came to be because you are part of the Lord's church and the church came into existence in time because it already existed in the eternal purpose that God had, mark this, before time. Now, just as a side note, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not teaching the, etern- the pre-eternality of the soul. Everything began there in the plan. And everything since then has been the purpose of God in action. The coming of Christ, or the foretelling of Christ, and the coming of Christ, and the founding of church, of the church by Christ, and the preaching of Christ, and the gathering of the people of Christ unto Christ by those whom Christ appointed to preach. This was in the plan of God. You know what else was in the plan of God? The, the, the resistance that would arise, the, the miserable circumstances, the painful 
seemingly overwhelmingly overwhelming opposition from those who wanted to shut Paul and the apostles down. Betrayal by people that they trusted. And even demonic opposition. This too was in the plan of God. That it would arise, that it would arise but prove powerless of stopping the church. God planned and purposed resistance to arise to demonstrate that absolutely nothing, nothing will stop his purpose in the church of Jesus Christ. And I see, I see perhaps the main lesson of the book of Job amplified in God's purpose in the church. Namely, God may allow us to be hurt. God may allow us to be singed, but he will not allow his church to be beaten or destroyed. This has all been the original plan. It hasn't been a contingency. It hasn't been a backup plan or plan B. God didn't have to go back to the drawing board. This was the eternal plan. Go back to Ephesians 1, 4. Half of you are flipping. Half of you are scrolling up. When were you chosen in Christ? 1, 4. What? Before the foundation of the world. Davis, you're our resident uh, Genesis expert. What does Genesis 1-1 say? When, when was the world founded? Yeah, in, in the beginning. So, so that's, that's, that's put on our, let's put on our PhD hats here. If we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, when the foundation of the world occurred in the beginning, then we were chosen before the beginning. We were chosen in eternity past. Uh, we see this again in Ephesians 2.10. When were our good works prepared beforehand? I'm, I've, I just grab that, pull it back in. When, were, when was our good works prepared for us? And then you say, beforehand, yes. Now, now I'm not certain. Yeah, we got to have a little fun here. So I'm not certain if, if this means uh, necessarily in eternity past or perhaps before our time or before we were, were born. But it does mean that God's hand was active in preparing us and our circumstances and our good works before we were ready to do them. So that when we were saved and when when God made us his workmanship, his crafted thing, as 2.10 says, God didn't have to then go back to the drawing board and draft up some good works for us to do. Those works were prepared beforehand, and they were right there waiting for us to walk in them. And so what this does, church, is it moves us towards seeing that there is thoughtful skillfully detailed precision and intentionality and purpose 
in you being where you are. And you being when you are. And having, and you having the load that you have. And you having the lot that you have. And that's important for us to grasp. It's important for us to grasp that all of these details, while our flesh makes that makes us think that these are all just happenstance, that it's all just circumstantial, it's all just a roll of the cosmic dice. No, all of these details began and are found in the eternal purpose of God. And it's, like I said, it's important for us to know lest we think that, you know what, maybe maybe things would have been better if I had someone else's life. If I had someone else's lot, if if I had been born in another time, another place with different circumstances. Are you ready for your application, church? Just like Paul, we ought to say that the eternal purpose of God has placed me somewhere. And it has placed me where I need to be. And it wasn't an accident. God didn't get distracted. His hand didn't slip. He didn't make a whoopsie. When he was fashioning you or your circumstances or the good works for you to walk in. Like Paul, like the attitude that, that, that he has been demonstrating since verse one, really, we need to say that this is my hour and this is my lot. And that God knew what he was doing, that he had a reason when he crafted me the way that I am and when he crafted my circumstances, be they good or poor, and led me to where I am today. And I'm not going to lose heart because my expectations didn't materialize. My friends, you don't know how many, even professing Christians, allow their faith to be shipwrecked because they 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 fashion this expectation of what God is like they're told that God has a God loves you and God has a wonderful plan for your life and then and then they go and 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 define that wonderful plan on in terms of their own expectations and that's a plan that really sounds a lot like what Satan tempted Jesus with if you remember Health, wealth, and adoration. Many allow their faith to become shipwrecked when the biblical God doesn't meet their expectations or because their trials are too great or their suffering is too great. Like Paul, we need to not lose heart. We need to press on. Now, is your pastor telling you to be a stoic? 
Are you to just suppress your burdens, your fears, your anxieties, your your causes of of sorrow? Are you uh, are you just to are you just supposed to take this on blind faith? Am I telling you to let go and let God with your troubles? Am I? No. No, I'm not. I'm not telling you to just go on your merry way armed only with the knowledge that God has some lofty sovereign purpose or reason behind your suffering. Rather, you can go, you can press on in Christ and not lose heart because of what we find in verse 12. It's because of the privilege that every believer, every believer has in Christ. Paul says in verse 12, the privilege of the believer, that this eternal purpose which he, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness. Now stop there. In whom, you know, he brought up Jesus and then he talks about what you have in the Lord Jesus Christ if you are his and he is yours. In him we have boldness. You can press on in your faith. You can press on in the face of adversity. You can press on through disappointment uh, and, and through anything, really, civil unrest or tragedy or heartache. Beloved, you can press on through 2020 because you have boldness in Christ. This word boldness has the, <coughs> the idea of courage, of confidence, of fearlessness. Now, again, Paul's not telling you to be stoic. He's not telling you to be oblivious to uh, the poor circumstances in your life or perhaps the troubles that are that are springing up in your life. There is a philosophy uh, that um, I think it began with Norman Vincent Peale and has uh, really manifested in some of the charismatic circles that say, you know what, your words have more power than you think, and so you shouldn't ever verbally acknowledge uh, uh, troubles or woes or sufferings because your words empower those things. And so don't ever say that you're sick. Don't ever say that you have cancer or that you're poor or that you have problems or that you're sad or that you're depressed. You know, all, all these things that, you know, kind of conflict with the whole Jesus, lo- God loves you and has a wonderful plan with your life, but yet Christians nonetheless have. So Paul's not saying that. He's setting up a, a one-two punch combo because he says that we have boldness in him and then he immediately tells us the source or the cause of our boldness. And it's not, uh, our boldness is not some lofty pie in the sky optimism. Yeah, well, uh, you know, if, if anyone has like some really reformed friend who says, well, I guess that's God's will. Whatever. Okay. You know, kind of like a reformed Eeyore. Oh, okay. That's God's will. Some of you enjoyed that more than you should have. No, Paul says that we have boldness in Christ And then he immediately tells us how we access, how we get our hands on and appropriate that boldness. And it's, it's what, it's in what follows. 
we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Now, we've covered this word, access. Uh, confident access here is the, it's the same word for access in chapter 2, verse 18, where Paul said, through him, through Christ, we have our access in one spirit to the Father. And as, it, as we talked about there a couple, several weeks back, access refers to one's right to speak and to be heard, uh, perhaps in court, perhaps uh, standing before a sovereign or before a king or a superior. And this was not a right that everyone had, certainly not in the ancient world. This isn't merely, one's access wasn't merely the, the hope that you'll be heard. You know, just showing up uh, outside the courtroom and rolling the dice and, and hoping it's your lucky day and that the judge is feeling generous with his time today. And that he'll he'll allow you to be brought in and to plead your case. Access here refers to the right, to the to the expectancy, the rightful expectancy that you have a place to plead your case, and for your need to be recognized, and for for some kind of solution to be made available. On your behalf, that expectancy, uh, the, the, the translators, they're trying to flesh that out when they slap on that word confident in front of access. And it means that you can, that you will be heard. You have the king's ear. All you need to do is speak. All you need to do is say what you need. Now. Every believer has this privilege in Christ. Every single one. This was a, this was a point that we made when we looked at 2.18. The Jews had it, and the Gentiles, the new kids on the block, had it. And so it, there's a very, very wide breadth in that every single person who's brought into the kingdom of God has this access. They are all on they are all brought near to the throne of grace. They are all placed on equal footing. There's no tiers, there's no levels, there's no hierarchy. But I want to stress the depth <laughs> or the quality of this privilege, of this access. Not only do do we all have it from the greatest to the least of us, But it never diminishes, it never degrades. Your access before the throne of grace is never revoked, it's never deactivated. And here's why. It's, it is made yours, it is given to you through Jesus and your privilege to exercise it remains in him. And what that means is that when God looks at you, when he, when he is deciding whether or not to allow you to come before his throne and whether to give you time to speak or to, or to, 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 to hear your requests, beloved, he doesn't see you as you. He 
He sees you as though you were Christ. Now, do you know how good that is? Do you? I mean, think about who Jesus was and the relationship that he had with the Father. By by the Father's own admission, Jesus, what, what did he say at his baptism and on the mount? This is my this is my boy. He's I. Right. What does he say? This is my b- beloved son. This is my beloved. I love him. I care for him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He is perfectly pleased. In fact, I, I, I would say to you that God could not be pleased with anybody else in existence more than he is with Jesus Christ. Jesus is, com- is completely sinless. He's completely holy. He's completely righteous and good. He is perfect in every way, because while he is man, he is also God. And so it's only natural for the father to be perfectly pleased with him. And when Paul says that we have our access through him in 2.18 and in him, our, our confident access in him in 3.12, it means that you don't stand before the father's throne because of how wonderful and how special you are. Now, if you're if you're a proud individual, I'm stepping on your toes. If you see yourself biblically, this is good news for you. You don't stand before the Father's throne because of the good things you've done, your good deeds, your merit, your good works, how special you are. You haven't earned the right to stand before the throne to be heard. What have we earned? But what we deserve, what we've earned, doesn't come, it, it isn't factored into the equation because what we deserve, what we have earned, has already been given to Christ on the cross and what Christ deserves, what he has merited, what he has earned, what he naturally had coming to him, is given to us as a gift. And so, you, me, and every believer who comes to Christ and abides in Christ, what we have is the privilege to stand before God and to know, not hope, not not, not wish, we know that we stand before God and we will be heard and he will be favorably responsive to us and to our prayers because it's as if it's as if Jesus himself came before his father and was making the very same requests If there was anyone, if there was anyone who had confidence to be favorably heard by God, it's Jesus Christ. 
and the same affectionate, the same loving inclination that the father has in answering his son's requests he has for you, if indeed you are in his son, Jesus Christ. You make these requests through your blessed substitute. Now, there's another point that I want to I want to make. We've been brought near. And we have this access. I'm I'm trying not to kick, kick a dead horse, but we have this access not by our innate goodness. Right. Right. I mean, we don't have it because of what we did. Right. Okay. It's by his righteousness, not our own. At the same time, what this also means is that when we sin, when we mess up, when we fall short, that doesn't mean that you're pushed out of the throne room. If your goodness, if your merit didn't bring you in, your your merit, whatever it is, doesn't kick you out. Ironically, this is perhaps when people most need to come before the throne of grace. And yet we tend to not think of ourselves. We tend not to organize our thoughts. We tend not to think of ourselves as being in Christ. We tend... There are many within evangelicalism who who really look at their Christian walk in terms of temporal goodness or lack thereof. And when we feel when we feel like we're doing really well, when we you know, when we when we attend church week after week and we you know, we read our Bible from time to time and maybe if we even remember a memory verse or two from Awana. If you know, if we if we feel ver- very spiritual and we feel like, you know what, <laughs> for the most part, we're doing pretty good. It's often then and only then when we pray. But what happens when you're not doing so good? What happens when you have sinned? What happens when you've sinned perhaps fragrantly? Flagrantly. If you sin fragrantly, that, that's between you and the Lord. What happens when we sin flagrantly? What happens when you don't feel very spiritual? What happens when you feel more fleshly? What happens when your fleshly thoughts and impulses and your fleshly feelings and emotions govern what you do and what you think. And when these things, when, you're, when your f- fleshiness undermines what Scripture says is true of you, if indeed you are in Christ. Here's, here's an example. When, I think when, we're, when we get like this, we tend to think, or some of us may think, you know, God's angry with me right now. And if I go to, if I go to pray, if I, if I go before his throne, he might thwomp me. That is an, that is your fleshiness undermining what Romans 8 1 says. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ 
Jesus. There is no thwomping left for you because all of the thwomping that was headed your way, all the thwomping that you ever deserved was thwomped upon Christ. Here's another one. Well, at any rate, God God probably doesn't want to hear from me right now, at least at least not until I do some stuff to to make up for what I did and to show him how sorry I am. The the least I can do is is do some let some time pass and do some good deeds and go to church for a while. And and then then it'll be okay. Then it'll be better. It'll be more appropriate for me to, to go before him in prayer. Now, there are other there are other examples like this where you're where fleshy thinking undermines what scripture says is true of you if you're in christ charles hodge says this concerning our access we come with the assurance of being accepted because our confidence does not rest on our own merit but on the infinite merit of an infinite savior we have freedom from fear of rejection or of evil. It is This is what Christ has procured for us. And if I can make an appeal to you, some of you need to be praying more than you currently are. And whatever roadblocks you've set up, maybe, maybe your schedule is just so stinking busy. Whatever roadblocks you have, time roadblocks, mental roadblocks, spiritual roadblocks, behavioral roadblocks, pattern roadblocks, whatever. Whatever is keeping you from utilizing the access that has been made yours, remove them and use your God-given access. Go to him in prayer. Hebrews 4.16. Let us draw near with confidence. This is, that's the same word. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find help in the time of need. Verse 13. I think I'm doing all right today. Verse 13. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. And I think the therefore sets up, sets us up to see why Paul took this 12-verse diversionary rabbit trail that he started in verse, uh, in verse 2. Well, actually, well, so verse 1, he, he called himself the prisoner of the Lord. Which, which brings to mind the fact that at the same time, what else is he a prisoner of? What earthly power? What nation state? Rome. He is a, he is a prisoner of Rome. At this point, he's been languishing in a cell for approximately five years, possibly a little longer. And what some of the Ephesians must have been tempted to think or to feel is that their apostle, remember Paul says, I was an apostle for your sake. I was made a minister, made a minister for you. He's their man. He's their champion. 
their advocate, humanly speaking. He's their father, their father in the faith. He is confined. He is isolated. He is in custody. His freedoms have been stripped. His health. I mean, these people knew what it was like to be in a Roman prison. You didn't get warm showers and you didn't get fed and provided nice clothes. They know Paul's hair is tattered. They know that, that he probably has sandbags under his eyes for lack of sleep, sleeping on a, on a stone cot. They know that he's probably lost a lot of weight. He, they, he, they know that his health is probably very poor. He's languishing in a prison. And they must have been tempted to dwell on this apparent weakness, on this apparent defeat, that they were tempted to feel like this was defeat for their apostle, the apostle that God appointed for them. (coughs) And maybe since Jesus wasn't powerful enough or sovereign enough to save Paul from prison, what, what does that say about Jesus being there for them? Or perhaps this was ju- divine justice for something Paul did. I mean, may- maybe maybe there was something to all the Jews' allegations about Paul. Maybe he was a con man. Maybe he was a ne'er-do-well, and this was the law catching up to him. Maybe Maybe his opponents were right. Some, having Paul's incarceration brought to mind some undoubtedly began struggling with how a good god can allow bad things to happen to to good people and if that if that thought is allowed to go is allowed to run rampant if it is not if it is left unchecked if it is not answered and answered biblically it causes it can cause catastrophic damage and so paul takes some time to deliberately answer that question he says in verse 13 in light of what i've said in light of the fact that i was appointed to this that I was told that this was going to happen if I preached Christ. And yes, I preached Christ anyway, and so here I am. Suffering has come upon me. Friends have deserted me. Former partners have harassed me to no end. I'm not dismayed. I'm not dismayed that I am where I am. I haven't heart, I haven't lost heart for the gospel, so don't you lose heart for the gospel either. And so I, I appeal to you sitting here in this church. I appeal to you not to lose heart in the face of suffering. Because in Christ, then this is so good for us. In Christ, suffering isn't pointless. Suffering isn't purposeless. Because Paul has said that his suffering, all of his, all of his circumstances, everything originated in the eternal plan of God. 
And him being where he was was merely God's plan unfolding and being put to action. And so don't lose heart when you have tribulations. Tribulations, this word speaks about something that's heavy. Do you ever have heavy loads? It also speaks about something that, that, it, that puts pressure on something else. Do you ever feel under pressure? Do your circumstances ever feel heavy or put pressure on you? They do for me. Paul says that you have someone to go to. And he can say that because he knew that he had someone to go to. You have in Christ someone to go to. You have someone who will hear you. You have someone who will help you. Don't lose heart. Your tribulations are the means that God uses to remind you that while you are limited, he is not. Therefore, be bold, be confident, and don't lose heart for the gospel. And so, mother or father of four or five, five, four, how many do you have? No, not you, you. One, two, four. Yeah, four. Okay. Got four back there. Not uh, one. Parents of kids. Parents of large kids. Parents of fewer but more extraordinary kids. Don't lose heart in your trials. If you're unemployed and you're struggling, I, I know this, I know it's not cheap to live here. And you're unemployed and you're wondering, why hasn't God provided the job yet? Why did God allow me to lose my job in the first place? I don't know. I don't know yet. Don't lose heart. To you who have cancer or some other illness or some other health impairment, don't lose heart. You having what you have doesn't mean that God is angry with you. It's the lot he's given you and you go to him, you ask for help, you ask for strength, you ask for him to show you what he wants you to do with it and Paul says he will hear you. You have someone to go to. You who have heavy burdens, you have someone to go to. Let me let me close with Paul's with with uh, another passage of Paul that has many of the same themes. This is most likely the last book he wrote, writing to his son in the faith. Second Timothy one eight to nine. Therefore. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel. You have to be firmly rooted in the sovereignty of God to entreat someone that you care about 
to join you in your miserable circumstances. That has to be conviction that you believe God knows what he's doing. Join with me. I think folded up and bound up inside that is don't lose heart. Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. And I understand this is an apostle speaking to a pastor of Ephesus. I recognize that not not everyone here is a pastor, but everyone here has a holy calling, first and foremost as a Christian. And if if you believe what I've what 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 Paul has been trying to tell us, uh, beginning with two ten, that your good works aren't just window dressing for your Christian walk, that they are things God has prepared you to do and called you to work in them. That's a holy calling. <clears throat> Be it being a mother, being a father, being a supervisor, being a blue-collar employee, what it, wherever God has placed you, that, beloved, that is your calling, and it's a holy calling. You don't need you don't need a man to say it's holy for you to see that it is holy. If it's given to you by God, it's a holy calling. He's called us with a holy calling, not a, yes, I know I know I'm running out of time. Not according to our works, but according to his here it is, but according to his own purpose. He has called us with a holy calling, not because of, you know, man, I, I, I could really use Ben. Oh, look, look how great Ben is. I could really, or, or Aaron, I, no. God wasn't looking at what I could do or what Dan could do or what Ben can do. He called us according to his purpose of what he's going to do in us. And great, okay, I'm getting back to this. And grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from when? Any, is anyone at Second Timothy 1 right now? What's verse 9? From all eternity. It goes back to what we said. It began a long time ago. Let's pray. Father, help us that we might delight and rest in your eternal purpose. Help us to trust firmly and fully in the merit of Christ, help us on the basis of his merit that is given to us. May we draw, may we be encouraged to draw near and may we do so. Father, I pray that you would watch out for these dear people. And if anyone is, if anyone is struggling or doubting your affection for them in Christ, give them a token of your grace this week. Give them a token of your grace that would reaffirm what we've said here today. That if indeed they are in Christ, if they have been purchased by his blood, then there's no condemnation left and there's no reason for them to think that they've been pushed out of the throne room. Help them to see that they have been brought near. affirm in their heart that they can find mercy and grace in their time of need. Convict in their hearts 
how utterly and completely faithful you are to hear your children, to receive them, and to provide for them. Help us to trust in you and to move forward in your in your purposes. We love you, Father. We thank you for every good and gracious thing that has been made ours in Christ Jesus. Amen.